In Seoul, Korea this weekend, Blizzard Entertainment announced a remaster for the classic real-time strategy game StarCraft. This will update the game to support 4K Ultra HD resolutions. It will allow players to play through the entire campaign, including the Brood War expansion content. And it will allow multiplayer matches using the current state of what used to be known as Battle.net, but just recently became the Blizzard app. Uh, so it has robust matchmaking and multiplayer content. It's basically taking that old StarCraft game and putting it into a modern setting for multiplayer. And I have to say, uh, you know, I've not been a huge fan of remasters. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about remastering games. But StarCraft certainly has a special place in my heart. The first Blizzard game that I fell in love with uh, was Warcraft 2. I never really played the first Warcraft, but Warcraft 2 hit me like a freight train. It was the first time I'd ever played a real-time strategy game. And uh, I got into it. My friends got into it. We used to play it with my friend's dad. It was a blast. We played LAN multiplayer games against the computer. We played through the campaign. But StarCraft, which was right on the heels of my obsession with Warcraft 2, StarCraft came out and it was like, oh my gosh, here's the next real-time strategy game. This is what I want. I love sci-fi. I want another real-time strategy game to dive into. Bought that game on my PC day one. And I, it became an obsession for the next several years. It was uh, a game I played so much, played through the campaigns, of course, and, and really was the, the first game that I got into in a multiplayer online context instead of just LAN multiplayer or uh, you know LAN parties. I think that was really the first game that got me online, got me uh, playing with and against other players. To be quite honest with you, I didn't really play a ton against other people because I kind of got my butt handed to me a lot. But I did love getting into co-op games against uh, against AI opponents. And we used to have a great time comp stomping, as they used to say. Uh, you know, you get in these uh, these these maps, these custom maps where you know resource heavy comp stomps, and it was just a blast. You could turtle until your face turned blue because <laughs> the computer was unable to do anything when you had tons of resources on your side and you could just build up all your defenses and and have a blast playing against other people. And it sounds like with this remastered version, all of that functionality is still going to be in place. They're not changing the game or rebalancing it in any way. They're just updating it and making it palatable for modern day eyes, ears, and uh, and system requirements. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. In general, though, I'm curious what you think about remasters. I mean, obviously, StarCraft for me is a special case. Um, and I have enjoyed some remasters in the past as well. I like when games get a full graphics pass. I mean, for example, what Double Fine has done with games like Day of the Tentacle, which looks night and day from its original version. I mean, obviously, sprite-based games have the most room to grow, have the most room to see massive improvement when you remaster them. Because uh, as much as I love pixel graphics, I think, you know, throwing on a new coat of paint like they did with Day of the Tentacle and really making it look 
uh, pristine and crisp and painterly. I love that. And these are games that had solid gameplay, that had solid experiences and narratives that I think deserve to be revisited. 3D graphic games being remastered, I think, is a, is a much more challenging proposition because a lot more work is required. You'd have to really update all the textures and... Um, the geometry itself still looks primitive in a in a large sense, and I think that really takes a uh, you know a, a start from scratch kind of remake of a game, which we may see uh, with something like Final Fantasy VII. I think that's going to be an interesting moment when that game finally comes out in six years. <laughs> uh, that you know to take an old game, to take an old experience, an old storyline, and completely remake it. Um, maybe, and that's more along the lines of what Hollywood does, right? With their remakes, they don't just throw a new coat of paint on things. They remake them from scratch with new actors, new, new, you know, completely new production. So, I'd like to know what you think about this. Which do you prefer? Let me know in a call-in. Okay, now it's time to answer some call-ins. Remember, if you're on the Anchor app, you can send me audio directly using the call-in feature. I love hearing those. We got some great ones, including this VR question. From AJ. Hey Jeff, this is AJ here, and I'm ecstatic that you are ecstatic about Rock Band VR. I've been playing it since it came out, and it is by far the best VR experience I've yet had. What I like about it, you talk about kind of how it fulfills the fantasy of being a rocker, and a lot of VR experiences so far have like fulfilled these, you know, um, fictional fantasies, things like being a wizard or tearing robots apart with my bare hands. But Rock Band was different in that it's it's something that like you could have realistically wanted to do if you had the skill or put in the time. And it just lets you kind of live out this real-life fantasy and, and lets you know, like, oh, this is what it's like for these people who actually do this. So what I'm curious to hear from you is... What other sorts of uh, fantasies do you think can be brought to life in VR the way Rock Band does? Uh, thanks a lot, man. Great show. Keep it up. Hi, AJ. Great question. Uh, I think this is a, a an area that is ripe for mining in VR. And I think that proof of that is a game that's already out that I've been hailing the praises of uh, since it was released last year at the at the release of the Oculus Touch hardware. And that is a game called VR Sports Challenge on Oculus. This game completely took me by surprise, but I absolutely loved it. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's giving me the experience of being a high-performance professional athlete and kind of understanding for a moment, in the same way that Rock Band does, what it must feel like. So, for example, uh, in VR Sports Challenge, you're able to... uh, Jump into the shoes of a of a uh, of a quarterback in the NFL or a NBA player or an NHL hockey player. I mean, obviously, these aren't licensed with the actual um, professional leagues, but the idea is there. So, whereas you know, with Madden or some other football game, yeah, you know, you have a sense of calling plays and strategizing, and then you know, controlling your character with a stick. But they don't give you the sense, the the wish fulfillment, the fantasy of actually being a quarterback in a in an actual game. But when they hike the ball to you in VR Sports Challenge and you have to put your hands out in front of you to catch that ball that's been hiked, 
And then you drop back to pass, and you scan your receivers to see who's open, and then you cock your arm back, and you throw the ball, and then it jumps into the perspective of the receiver, and you actually physically have to put your hands up to make the catch. That feels like what it must feel like to be an NFL quarterback, at least a small fraction of that experience. Even cooler, the NBA or the basketball simulation, uh, I shouldn't use the I shouldn't use NBA because it has nothing to do with the NBA in, these, in this game. But the basketball module actually gives you the experience of slam dunking. I mean, every kid wants to slam dunk. We've all had the experience of getting a hoop and, and lowering it to the point where we could slam dunk or borrowing a friend's trampoline to, to be able to slam and inevitably bending and breaking the, the rim. This... Uh, VR experience is so rad because you can set up these alley-oops and then you physically throw the ball. You physically move your hands to in a throwing motion to throw the ball forward as one of your teammates is cutting to the hoop. And then it takes you and puts you in the teammate that cut to the hoop as he leaps into the air. Everything slows down into slow motion and you glide like a superhero like Michael Jordan must feel. Uh, you soar through the air, you reach out, you catch the ball, you turn to the hoop, and you slam it in. I think this is exactly what you're talking about, AJ. This is – these are experiences that we all fantasize about, that we all imagine. What must it be like to be in an NBA game and get an alley-oop and just dunk on some fool? I think VR is going to be able to provide lots more of these type of experiences. Uh, and I – and the, in, you know, I think – the the ones that are obvious are, you know, walking on the moon, walking on Mars. We already have VR experiences that do that kind of thing. Uh, any of these kinds of extreme experiences, leaping out of an airplane, uh, you know, riding in a bobsled down, uh, you know, down an Olympic course, uh, using an, a wingsuit, you know, all of those kinds of things that are dangerous or death-defying or scary – I think VR is going to immediately give you that kind of experience. I had, I did a um, an experience based on the movie The Walk, where it let me walk on a tightrope above, uh, you know, on the old World Trade Center uh, towers, because you know that movie took place uh, at a time when those still stood. And uh, at, at the demo event where I did that, they laid a, a rope on the floor so my feet actually felt the feeling of a tightrope in addition to being able to see and hear all of the things that you would see and hear that high up in the sky. It was extraordinary because then I had the tactile feeling on, on my feet. I think we're going to see a ton of that, and it makes me very excited for VR. VR is really going to be able to give you both the experiences that don't exist – and experiences that you wouldn't be able to experience in any other way. I think that's really exciting. On the flip side for VR, we have this call-in from Just the Picks, who provides a point of view that I hadn't really considered until now. Hey there, thanks for doing the show. Um, I really love it. But in any case, uh, a note about VR. I'm blind in one eye, low vision in the other which I'll admit puts me sort of outside the norm as far as video gamers and game playing. Um, there's only certain games that I can play successfully, so I, I you know, I, I, I really appreciate it when people put an easy mode in. <laughs> but in any case, um, VR is right out for me because it requires binocular vision on the whole. 
so I'm really glad that it's evolving. I think progress is always a good thing, but I hope that it never gets to the point where standard 2D, 3D gaming, you know, dies because then I'll be completely out of luck. So anyway, thanks. Thank you, Just the Picks. Um, really interesting. You know, it, it's easy for me to be blind to those kinds of experiences because they're not something I deal with every day. And I think it uh, it's great to be reminded that not everyone has the same experience with games. Not everyone has the same needs with games that I do. And uh, as much as I love VR experiences and and have wanted them to sort of replace 2D gaming to a large extent, uh, it's important to understand and and be reminded that not everyone is able to experience them the same way I am. So I, you know, to answer your question, I, I don't think we're going to see 2D games leave anytime soon. The delta between graphical ability inside the headset and outside the headset is still such that I think most developers want their games to look great, uh, as, as great as possible. And that's just not going to happen inside the headset yet. But, uh, but I hope that there are, Solutions for this. I hope that um, you know, as we've seen in a lot of um, a lot of input devices and a lot of different um, different innovations that they've made for people who can't access games uh, in the same way everybody else can. I think that um, that would be great if we figured out ways that VR can progress. I mean, once we get to that point, and hopefully it's in my lifetime, we just put a chip in our neck, and it doesn't matter. It does, it's all just purely tied right into your cerebral cortex. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll all get there and we'll all be able to visualize the same things. But, uh, until then, I'm sure your, your 2D experiences are, are still going to be, be there. And, uh, I wish you all the best gaming. Yesterday, right after newest, latest, best went up for the day, we got confirmation from Activision and Bungie that Destiny 2 is happening. I think it's not a big surprise to everybody, but the fact that we get official confirmation and official logo with the Destiny 2 name, knowing it's a big numbered sequel, not just an expansion, and it's coming this year, I think that's pretty huge news. It's pretty big it's devoid of any real content, let's be honest. We don't know exactly what Destiny 2 will be, but we can certainly expect a lot of information to start trickling out as we head into E3 season. And I'm sure Destiny 2 is going to have a big presence at E3 this year. Uh, I'm curious what you guys want out of a Destiny 2. When Destiny was released, I was very excited. I got into the beta and I was having a ton of fun playing with my friends, playing co-op missions. I thought that beta that they they initially allowed everyone for free to jump into and try out, I thought that was going to be just the tip of the iceberg, just the very beginning of what kinds of experiences I might expect in Destiny. And I was very disappointed to find out that there really wasn't much more than what was available in that beta. Yes, the, it was just the first few levels, but really the first few levels was everything. Now, granted, there was a lot of raid content, a lot of new content, a lot of DLC, a lot of excellent stuff got added into that game. But as somebody that came at it hoping for MMO meets first-person shooter, which is kind of how they hyped the game up, 
I was kind of disappointed there wasn't more MMO. It's very much first-person shooter with just some role-playing, leveling-up mechanics strapped on. And so that is where I come to Destiny 2. I really hope that it finally fulfills the anticipation that I had for a true role-playing experience, a true MMO-type open galaxy, open world experience. Now, I can understand if the levels are still, you know, uh, fractured into different instanced loading areas and feel a little small. I, I don't mind. It doesn't necessarily need to be open world in the way that Zelda is open world, for example, or Horizon Zero Dawn is open world, for example, or World of Warcraft is open world. Although that would be super cool, I think. I'd be down for that. But what I'm hoping for is a, is a larger variety of experiences to be had in that universe and a much more robust, interesting story to be told. I'd like to be brought into the lore of Destiny in a more interesting way. I'd like there to be some deeper exploration to happen on those worlds and a, a larger variety of enemies. I'd like different kinds of mounts to be acquired. I'd like more to be done with a spaceship. I'd like the science fiction premise to be filled out a little better and explored a little more deeply. Yes, they created a really fun, repeatable first-person shooter experience. They're great at that. Bungie can do that in their sleep, it seems. And sadly, I think a lot of Destiny seemed to be sleepwalking. It seemed to be a, a little repetitive from what they'd done before. Now, that first game was establishing a universe. It was uh, creating an entire new platform for them. But I really hope this sequel proves that the promise of that platform uh, really can be fulfilled in a, in a really more grandiose way. I want to be able to craft things. I want more different kinds of character classes. Give me some real variety. Give me some real decision in how I interact with that world? Am I crafting and building things for the community? Am I, you know, I want it to be more of an MMO. Am I a healer? Am I a tank? Am I a DPS? I'd like those tropes to seep their way into the Destiny universe. And I think that would make for a more interesting experience for me. But I'm curious what you think. I'm certain that most of the people that listen to this that are Destiny fans have played a heck of a lot more Destiny than I have because I fell out of the game after the first uh, couple of weeks of it being out, I just it just did not hook me because it didn't have enough world building and narrative stuff or, failing that, mechanics, MMO mechanics that would keep me coming back for more. But I know a lot of you have played it, and I'm very curious what you think and what makes you excited for a Destiny 2. What do you want to see? Let me know in a call-in. I'd love to hear it. And now to answer a call-in, this one comes from Your Financial Future. Ooh, Your Financial Future calling. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, about board games, one of my favorite topics. And he wants to know about Pandemic. I really like your inclusion of some designer board games into your station because many of the gamers that I know are more into the social aspect of gaming and enjoy the occasional board game so i'm gonna have to check out paperback i'm curious how uh where you would go buy it because uh, i'm only seeing on amazon for like 40 bucks right now 
I am slightly leery of a word game because of the the cheese that is the the online dictionaries and the words that might be a word somewhere in the world but really aren't a word but you convinced me to give it a shot and thanks i'm curious if you were to do a segment on the game pandemic Hey, thanks for the call in. To answer the first part about availability of designer board games, uh, two of my favorite sites that sell them uh, direct are uh, Cool Stuff Inc. and Fun Again Games. They're both great places to get really all the latest stuff uh, that is available in the board gaming world. You know, they go to the big conventions, they go to Essen. They go to Gen Con. They go to all the big conventions where the new releases are put out, and they grab a bunch. So those are good resources. And yeah, Amazon. You know, Amazon is a great place. Just search for the games. Usually, you can find them from big sellers and small sellers alike. Um, I think that forty bucks for paperback is, is a little bit um, is a little steep, but uh, hopefully, you enjoy the game. As for pandemic, uh, you asked about. Pandemic, which is really one of the best board games in my collection, uh, and there are several versions of the game. There are expansions for the base game Pandemic, and then, of course, there's Pandemic Legacy. So I want to talk a little bit about both of those. Um, Pandemic is a cooperative board game. So if you're not familiar with where board games have gone in the last 10 to 15 years, there is an entire genre of games that you play cooperatively against the game. So you and the other players around the table are teaming up and combining your skills to try to survive as long as possible against the game and eventually get to the victory condition. In pandemic, the situation is that there are a number of global diseases that are spreading across the map and you are attempting to, uh, you are a, a group of scientists and medical technicians that are attempting to globetrot and head off these diseases at the past to try to come up with cures and treat the population before the diseases spread to the point that everyone on earth dies. <laughs> it's a, it's a cheery premise, uh, but it's, it's tons of fun. There are different, different roles that each player can take on that give you certain special powers and coming up with the great combination of special powers in order to deal with the problem of the spreading diseases. And the way it works is, the diseases are represented by, by cubes on the map, and after every turn, you reveal new cities where those cubes are going to spread to, uh, and you are, you know, taking transportation into those cities and trying to, to treat those diseases and, and tamp them down, all the while, uh, trying to find the cures. Uh, and once you find a cure for a disease, you can eradicate it completely and move on. And you have to, you know, eradicate a certain number of diseases to, to win the game. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot, it's very challenging. And it's, uh, it's one of those games where you're just trying to mitigate as much disaster as possible. And the game is constantly throwing more and more things. And you can get to a point where stuff just completely domino effects on you. And uh, a disease will spread into another city that already is infected. And then that causes a spread into a farther city. And all of a sudden you find yourself completely overwhelmed. But that's the fun. That's the fun of the game is trying to uh, mitigate those those conditions and, and figure out a way to, to outsmart the diseases. <laughs> Um, and I, it's a game I highly recommend. It is totally fun. I think if you're one of those people that avoids designer board games or avoids board games in general because of the competition factor, 
because it doesn't really feel fun to try to beat your friends. Cooperative board games and Pandemic in particular are a great place to start. I think it really welcomes new people into the hobby because you all are teaming up. You're all discussing what the best strategy is. Very, very fun genre. Very, very fun game in particular. And then... After you've played a few games of, of vanilla base Pandemic, you have lots of expansions to explore. And there's some really, really cool ones that add new mechanics to the game. But even more exciting is Pandemic Legacy. And that is a game that adds a persistent element to the series. So your first game of Pandemic Legacy affects every game after it. And it's a game designed to be played in at least 12 rounds. You play in over months of time. And as things happen as you make decisions, as you tamp out diseases, you eventually open new packets of cards and new boxes from the game box that add new pieces and new rules and remove rules from the game. And so the game is evolving and changing based on what happens in your game world. So my 12th game of Pandemic Legacy is very different from yours, and it's all based on how we progressed. It's a very exciting concept. And they managed to actually tell a story Tell a long, complex story. It's exciting. Season 1 is out. Season 2 is coming. It's one I highly recommend, but you should play the base game first. Today I have another developer interview for you. I got a chance uh, yesterday afternoon to go down to Newport Beach, California, and visit the studio of In Exile Entertainment. Uh, very excited uh, I'm a huge fan of the Bard's Tale and Brian Fargo's games. Uh, full disclosure, I am a Kickstarter backer for Bard's Tale 4. But that's not the game that I went down to the studio to check out. No, they announced uh, during GDC just a couple of weeks ago that they were producing a new game in the Bard's Tale universe called A Mage's Tale. And this game is a fully VR experience made from the ground up in virtual reality. It's going to come out initially on Oculus and then on other platforms. And it uh, allows you to step into the shoes of a mage's apprentice. And it's a full AAA, 8 to 10 hour gaming experience, fully in VR. I was very keen to try it. So I got a chance to go hands-on with 45 minutes of the game, um, slices of the beginning and then a late boss battle at the end or toward the, the later sections of the game. Uh, it was a, a big meaty section. I got to do some puzzles. I got to do some combat. I got to create spells with the spell creation system. And this is my interview with the lead designer right after I finished playing it, uh, David Rogers. So I'm with David Rogers, lead designer on A Mage's Tale here at In Exile. Uh, I just got my butt handed to me a couple times by a giant, but I um, uh, eventually vanquished him uh, using my mage skills. Yeah, you found the key to his skates. <laughs> That's you right. Just gotta keep shuffling. Just gotta keep shuffling, baby. Um, so much to talk about with this, this game. It is everything that I've been wanting out of VR, like a full, big, deep experience, like a, a full role-playing experience with puzzles and combat. And Let's start with the mage fantasy. Sure. Uh, because I think that the game really leans into that uh, heavily. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about the functionality of the cauldron and mixing spells and creating spells. Yeah. So, like, um, like our best tutorial sort of guidance is just tell people to do wizard stuff. And that was kind of... We, we tried to figure out, like, what motions and actions just felt wizardly in general. And so naturally throwing fireballs, you want to get your arms moving. When you're doing lightning spells, you feel like, uh, like uh, Emperor Palpatine. And then when you're even operating, like, the main menu, choosing a save file or, like, crafting a spell... You have a big cauldron in front of you, and you just pick the ingredients off the shelf that look mystical enough to be added to your concoction, and you just toss it in. Yeah. Uh, you see, like, a big puff of smoke, and you have all the fanfare. Um, but it really is sort of as simple as just, like, just like dumping in everything, including the kitchen sink, into this cauldron, and then seeing what spell emerges. And then, yeah. you, particularly when it's your first time in, you don't even know. So you're just sort of experimenting and seeing what comes out. And there's really creativity in it. <laughs> but the thing that I'm so impressed with with the game is that you, you guys seem to have really focused on the physicality of the world. Mm -hmm. Like, everything is physical. It, you know, to finish a spell, I have to physically stir it with my big right. mage's staff to... Uh, operate any of the puzzle. I have to turn cranks, and I, everything is a physical action. Yeah, we we really early on just abolished sort of the concept of having menus was just a crutch, and it didn't even make sense for a VR game. Like why you things can be intuited so easily when you just have hands um, that just keeping everything in the realm of sort of uh, intuition. Like how do I how do I drink this potion? Well, how would you normally drink a potion? Right. Put it to your lips, tip it up, and you're good to go. Right. How would I eat a mushroom? Just stick it in your mouth. How do I cast a fireball? Everyone's done that. You sure. know, you just throw like throw a baseball. Throw a fireball. Yeah, just yeah. throw a fireball. Um, uh, and, and that just kind of got us the most mileage. And so the moment we even thought about trying to teach you a menu, it was this whole alien set of scenarios that didn't even fall in line with the fantasy we wanted to build, which was being a wizard mm -hmm. and doing wizard stuff all the time. Like, you experienced going back to the lab. So, like, you were in the middle of the dungeon, and you wanted to teleport back to the lab, and you can recall how you pulled that off. Yeah, I pulled my, put my hands over my head and teleported in a beam of light. It was amazing. Right. So, like, I think, I think when we set that feature out, I think the words we used were Thor, Bifrost, and He-Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and we just wanted to, like, we figured out, um, with our spell casting and with all these actions, we tried to figure out just what poses... Like, sort of like Jane McGonagall power poses, we wanted you to strike, mm -hmm. and then we would contrive a scenario for you to do so. And so, we knew that, like, operating cranks would just feel good, and, and pulling levers, and yanking chains, yeah. and pushing, like, you'll find these, like, really suspiciously protruding bricks in the wall, and you can sometimes push them in, and then the wall will retract... And we found all these just sort of generally satisfying motions. You played with the Lazy Susan, and you could just sort of, like, yeah. spin it and just, like, let it go. Uh, and so, yeah, we kind of started with that list of what actions would be fun in VR, and then what scenarios can we build to get you there. It is really satisfying to just do those little physical things. And um, one of the things I was so excited to see in the game is is real puzzles and physical manipulation puzzles. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but you showed me a secret right in the main menu where I could look underneath something and discover a lever. I mean, the idea yeah. of having secrets that are hidden like that in the physical geometry of the world where I actually have yeah. to look around things yeah. is, I think, is, the, is one of the magic moments in VR where you, you really take advantage of being able to slow down and do things slowly. Mm -hmm. But the game also is fast, and I never felt sick. Right. Well, so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to move, and we use a pseudo-teleport pseudo solution. It's not a straight teleport. We actually... 
over, I want to say, 150 milliseconds, we actually move you very rapidly so that you don't have that moment of disconnect where, like, the screen goes black and you blink. Right. You're just, you're just sort of shuffling from side to side very quickly. Uh, but you played with our classic aim teleport where you say, I want to go specifically there, and everyone's kind of experienced that. But then there's the quick strafe, right. which lets you just dodge side to side very quickly in, like, these very small increments, but it helps you feel like you're in control and you're not a victim of the movement system, which can so often be the case. Like, mm. a movement system where, like, I have to click and hold forward and then hold it for a certain duration to like let something fill up I don't feel like I can sort of I have an action in my mind I want to do I want to get over there because there's like an arrow or a giant or a fireball heading my way what's the shortest path for me to enact my will in the game and that was that was super important to us and you, you saw how, early on, you saw how like powerful dodging is. Yeah. And we really quickly picked up, up on that, too. So as you sort of go through these dungeons, and again, we have 10 dungeons and 11 levels, uh, where you're going to go through these dungeons and encounter new monsters in virtually every single dungeon, and they keep sort of changing the way you play. So eventually you encounter uh, 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 goblin shamans, and they have heat-seeking fireballs. Um. And the entire dodging gameplay is out the window because they're just going to chase you to the end of the earth and that's when you have to start blocking and then you start and then we evolve that even further and then you experience our corrupted wizards and they don't only just fire one seeking fireball they fire an array and a pattern and now you have to start blocking in patterns oh wow uh, otherwise you get hit with like three four five fireballs and then you just you're immediately so now toast. I'm playing audio shield right, <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah halfway through the game it becomes audio <laughs> shield a little bit for a second it's awesome yeah I mean I was very impressed with it that especially in that um, that giant battle that I did at mm-hmm. the end of the demo I mean, it really was in basically a first-person shooter. I mean, I was it was as kinetic as that. It was action-packed. It wasn't, right. you know, it wasn't what a lot... I mean, there's a lot of VR games that are action-packed, but this the movement through the environment as part of right. the fight, I was impressed with, and it never nauseated me. Right. Yeah. Are you normally, like, a nauseous kind of fella? Well, I mean, I kind of have my VR legs at this point, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can be affected that way. You, so. yeah, I mean, you can build a game that way. That's kind of... From a developer side, it feels very powerful. I can build a game that will make you throw up. I am 100% confident <laughs> yeah. I can make a vomit simulator. Uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to figure out how to like gamify that. Like, you're playing a survival game or something, you eat the wrong mushrooms, and then I just physically make you throw up oh, as a God. person. <laughs> I, did, I did eat a mushroom in Mage's Tale, and it had a cool effect. I thought that was neat. And, and that brings me to another point I think I, that I was impressed with, is um, the game embraces humor as well. Yeah. And, and is that... Sort of across the whole Bard's Tale universe? It's across the Inexile universe. I don't know. We, we're not really capable of making a straight, serious game. Uh-huh. Um, it's just because we're just too snarky as, 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 a, as a development team. And I, I don't even, like... I, I would say it's like an outset direction. Like, let's make a game with humor. No, it just kind of works its way into everything we do. So you're going to see that in The Bard's Tale. You find that in Wasteland. You find that in Torment. Like, you find that in every single game we do. There's a little lightheartedness that we can't help but not sneak in. Right. Can you talk to me a little bit about, I mean, I, we, we've covered uh, the advantages that VR gives you in a physical way and everything, but can you talk about some of the challenges that you ran into developing this game in VR alongside Bard's Tale? Well, uh, oh, I mean, alongside Bard's Tale, that's, that's like a totally different uh, discussion. That's, that, we, it's a totally separate team. We have actually a, to, to build, we took VR very seriously, and so to build the, the Mage's Tale, we sort of expanded our studio. So we have an entire NOLA studio now that is really dedicated to just, like, 
nailing VR. And so they, they've been like the driving force. And then we have people out here, and it's been coordinating between the studios, but the bulk of our team's been out in Enola. When you like threw the confetti fireball, yeah. that was actually Mardi Gras colors, sort of, <laughs> in homage to that, to, to that group. Oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, but when it comes to building in VR, there's, it's, I mean, it's a lot of fun from a development perspective because you're forced to throw out a lot of old sort of crutches you've leaned on. Like, I can't use menus, or I don't want to use menus. It doesn't make sense anymore right. to just have, like, layered menus. And how do I access my inventory? Well, I'm going to pop open an inventory menu. No, I need to, like, put something on your belt, or you have to pull out a bag, or I need right. to, like, I need you to rummage through something, and we everything should be intuitive and basically go through your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, VR is a big game changer, but I would say touch to yeah. an equal or greater extent is a game changer. Sure. Because um, it just changes the way you perceive yourself and your avatar, and it changes the way you think about interfacing with the world, and it, everything becomes very real. Um, and and from there's a density... I don't know the right... There's an expectation we have to meet as soon as you give the player hands. And that expectation is, now that I have hands, my hands should do hand stuff, and all the things around me should behave as they do, I should be able to pick up all the objects, all of them, mm-hmm. like, and that's a thing we have to account for. Uh, that brazier, when I throw a fireball at it, should light on fire. Right. Um, that rope should burn. Uh, these mushrooms, I can eat mushrooms in real life, so I should be able to do that now. And what you find is, as we're in development, we'll see sort of first-time users try something, and then we have to write it down and then make it come true, <laughs> because the next time somebody tries something, we, it, it's important that we make all of your sort of intuitive leaps happen because yeah. then the moment we stop making that come true then you start going oh, okay I can't rely on my intuition anymore you know this is a game and we don't want that thought to go through your mind we don't right. want that thought to go oh it's a game there's certain rules in play we just want you to just be in the space and just be there right I, and it works so well I mean even just like leveling up where you have to physically touch a gem on the back of your hand yeah. I mean all of that tactile stuff is it just feels like the way it all should be and the way it all I want it to be forever. Yeah. Uh, and I, obviously in exile is committed to creating <laughs> traditional, you know, two dimensional games, but, um, which I've, I've, I found that to be, I've started using the term too ever since VR came about games. We used to call 3d games right. have now become 2d games <laughs> right. just by virtue of them being on a monitor. Like everything's been downgraded by one D <laughs> exactly. you lost a D in there. Or yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, I'm I'm hoping that you that this it heralds a, a a shift in maybe you guys being committed to this long term. Is it kind yeah, of contingent no, on how Major Tale does? No, we're committed to VR. That's I mean, great. we we want to do VR in the future. We've expanded to handle it. Now we now I mean, we have as much as experience as just about anybody these days. You put out one good game, and you're for the most part in the top ten. <laughs> sure, yeah, because <laughs> it's so new. But we have we now have sort of that experience. We've gone through the process. Uh, yeah, I, I would expect more in the future. That's great. Uh, I mean, I can't wait for Major Sales to come out this summer. Uh, the Major Sales coming out this summer. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, is it uh, exclusive to Oculus or? So we are launching on Oculus first, and we are ultimately going to support other platforms. And one of the elements that we haven't really spoke about, but that we're super proud of, is we feel like we're really launching like something that feels like a full meaty game. And yeah. so you played the first of nine dungeons. The game is over ten hours long. Yeah, it's and awesome. So we have tons. We have over thirty mystic ingredients to collect. We have. Hundreds of meaningful spell combinations you get to find. Uh, there's like well over, I think we, I think we have what, 16, 15, over 10 enemies, enemy yeah. types that are like distinctly different, really ask different things from you as a player. And the game just kind of keeps getting harder, and the puzzles get more puzzling and mind bending and sort of bizarre. And 
we've always leaned on the idea of like a wizard did it as an explanation and <laughs> we can kind of finally just like lean on that like just really lean into it uh, and make it make sense so they things get pretty trippy like, yeah I can't wait to play it because I mean it really is as you said it is that I think that next place that VR needs to get to where it's not a tech demo it's not a series of mini games it really does feel like a full triple A game Graphically, it's on par with anything I'm going to be playing 2D. That was a huge push for us. Yeah, yeah it looks great, it plays great, and, and it sounds like it's going to be a real media experience. So I'm excited to try it. It was really cool to get a chance to play A Mage's Tale early. It's coming out this summer. I couldn't be more excited. It, this, it really represents the next big wave of VR titles that have been baking a little bit longer, been cooking a little bit longer, and, and uh, just are going to show that much more polish and be that much bigger and more robust experiences we're really going to start getting vr games that don't just feel like tech demos or mini games uh, that really do feel like big bombastic triple a experiences and this is an example of that i couldn't be more thrilled and really thanks to the, all the folks at in exile for welcoming into the studio i uh, had a great time visiting uh, i'll have more impressions uh, later on in the week thanks for listening remember to favorite this channel and uh, don't miss a single day of newest, latest, best, because we are here every single day with new content. Also, send in your call-ins. Love getting those. It's just an easy button press away on the Anchor app. We'll see you tomorrow. Some big news yesterday from Blizzard Entertainment. Certainly big news for me as a massive, passionate <laughs> Heroes of the Storm fan. If you listen to any of my shows, you know that I am absolutely hooked on Heroes of the Storm. It is my MOBA of choice. I play it compulsively every single day of the week. And uh, it's, a, it's some huge news for fans of Heroes of the Storm, and it might be the kind of thing that will welcome new players into the game. Uh, Blizzard announced Heroes of the Storm 2.0, which is a massive update that's coming to the game very soon, that will sh uh, feature a uh, overhaul in the way that the game rewards players. There's a new progression system that gets rid of, of level caps and uh, basically allows your cumulative hero level, the, the level you've attained in each of the game's numerous heroes, to be combined into your, your player level, which is, a, I think, a pretty cool indicator, uh, shorthand indicator of the amount of time you put into the game, uh, which I think is a huge uh, boon for players understanding at a glance uh, how much experience uh, the players on their team and on the opposite team have. So I'm, I'm welcoming that change. But the much bigger news is uh, the, the loot system, the loot boxes that they've brought into the game. It's no surprise with the amount of success that that Blizzard has had with Overwatch, they would adapt a an Overwatch-influenced system for Heroes of the Storm, but I'm surprised how big these changes are. Previously, you could purchase new heroes using the in-game gold system or real human money, and any cosmetic item like skins or mounts uh, generally cost real money. Now Blizzard has introduced three different currencies, keeping gold, uh, adding gems, which are a substitute for real money, and uh, shards, which can be used to craft certain items, and uh, loot boxes, like you see in Overwatch, are now uh, featured in the game. So you can acquire loot boxes a whole number of ways, and they can feature any item from the game. So you can loot a new hero, you can loot skins, you can loot mounts, and you can loot a whole variety of new things that they've brought into the game that clearly are influenced from Overwatch. We've got uh, tags 
and uh, we've got voiceover uh, emotes. We've got regular old-fashioned kind of emoji emotes, a, a whole variety of new things that are uh, compiled in one tab called your collection. So there's a whole bunch of new stuff to acquire, a whole bunch of new rewards to give you uh, as you play through the game. And, and I think it really adds more carrots on the ends of sticks other than just player skill for players in uh, in Heroes of the Storm. For me, this is a very exciting concept. I play the game compulsively anyway, so giving me more stuff to unbox and unpack and, and win and loot is is great. And it certainly seems like there are more ways to not spend money now. There are more ways to get those cool skins and funky color palettes and everything for your characters without having to uh, spend any actual money. And I, I think that's that's pretty fun because I'll be honest, I've spent a fair amount of money on Heroes of the Storm, more than I'd like to admit. So having these uh, shards that you can actually... Uh, uh, disenchant certain things that you've, that you've looted that are duplicates of stuff you already have and then use that currency to make the things you want is interesting. But, uh, you know, previously if you bought a skin, you got three color variations of that skin un- unlockable. Uh, and now each of those color variations is its own unique skin to be won or unlocked or crafted. Uh, so I think there's a lot more there. And I'm spending a lot of time talking about cosmetic items, but cosmetic items are a lot of the draw in these games to personalize your character and make it something interesting. And I think uh, a lot of Overwatch players would attest that this is uh, a big part of the fun of that game is making your character look cool, making your character be able to spray something cool on the wall. And to bring that into Heroes of the Storm I think is a, is a pretty interesting idea. We'll see how it plays out. Of course, alongside this announcement, they introduced a new hero and a whole roadmap for new content going forward. And all of that is available on the PTR right now. I dipped in last night and got my toe wet uh, with Cassia, the new hero, and checked out this new collections tab. I mean, I'm, I'm such a fanboy for this game. Uh, I'm very, very excited for all the energy around it, and hopefully it'll bring in a whole lot of new players just in time for Heroes of the Dorm, their big college-based uh, eSports tournament. I'll be talking about it a lot more, I'm sure. In other news yesterday, EA officially announced the sequel to Star Wars Battlefront, which came out uh, well, a little over a year ago. Star Wars Battlefront 2 officially announced, officially coming this fall to PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. I'm anticipating a lot more information coming at Star Wars Celebration, which will be happening um, this uh, mid- mid-April. And uh, a lot of that will be hosted by my uh, co-host on We Have Concerns, Anthony Carboni. So you should tune in for that. But I think it's safe to say, even knowing zero about what this game is actually going to look and play like, it's a pretty exciting concept for those of us that are big Star Wars fans. Star Wars Battlefront came out and I think wowed, it certainly wowed me uh, with its visual fidelity, the fact that it looked almost photorealistic and uh, all of the care and effort they took in bringing all of that movie, the real movie props, the real movie items, the real movie environments into the digital space. It really did translate the magic of the Star Wars universe into a video game, but it was multiplayer only, right? And I think a lot of people found the actual content a bit thin. There's only so many times you can do the Battle of Hoth 
uh, in multiplayer before you're itching to have some meatier uh, content. Certainly for me, what I'm looking for from a Star Wars experience is some cool campaign style content. And, and I mean, that's me as a gamer. I know a lot of people enjoy uh, first person multiplayer uh, more, but I think for Star Wars, what, what you're in for is the story. What you sign up for is uh, experiencing that world and, and getting to play out your fantasies as being a Star Wars character, Star Wars participant. A Jedi! I mean, you had some cool Vader and Luke stuff you could level up in the middle of battles, but my goodness, if Star Wars Battlefront 2 delivers the kind of 8 to 10 hour campaign experience with that visual fidelity, with that level of, of care and detail that they put into the Star Wars environments. And we get to see, you know, both original trilogy content and maybe some new stuff from episode seven, maybe even some stuff from the prequels. Although I could sort of take or leave that, but hey, a pod race wouldn't be, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, a battle of Naboo uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Uh, some, uh, some lightsaber battle in on the v- volcanoes of Mustafar. I mean, you could do worse, right? Uh, I think that's the exciting idea is, is this, um, campaign content. Uh, I'm curious what you guys would want out of a Star Wars Battlefront 2. Of course, there's a little part of me that is secretly harboring hope for more VR content. The Star Wars Battlefront VR experience was so rad. And such a cool showpiece for VR. It is the thing that if I have a friend that comes over and says, hey, show me that PlayStation VR. Let me show me what that's all about. I don't jump into Batman. The first thing I do is make them fly an X-Wing in VR in the Star Wars Battlefront VR experience because it sells the concept. It's perfect. That cockpit feeling of being inside a, an X-Wing fighter. Uh, it, it, there's nothing better to sell the idea of VR, to be able to look around, look behind you and see that R2 unit supporting you in the back of the X-Wing. So if there's more of that, if there's more uh, interstellar space stuff, I think that would be a great addition to the Star Wars Battlefront game. If the campaign allows you to fly X-Wings and A-Wings and B-Wings in formation in space instead of just sort of flying them in low-level orbit over you know, the multiplayer skirmishes of the first game. I think that would be a huge improvement. There's a lot of stuff that could be added to this game. I'm hoping the development cycle, the the amount of time that this thing has been baking, allows for that kind of robust single-player comp- content or even, you know, co- co-op multiplayer content through a a really rich campaign. What would you guys want to see? Do you want to see actual film moments you want to see the story beats from the original trilogy played out in a game or do you want to see some sort of new moments carved out some sort of side elements that take place in those timelines or whole new star wars content it feels like battlefront isn't the place for new characters and and new stories in the star wars universe it seems like it's more about delving into those experiences we're already familiar with but i'm curious what you're hoping to see during star wars celebrations big announcement for this game remember you can always record your comments and your reactions to this this channel your feedback to all the stuff that i'm talking about or anything that you're into in the video game world and send it to me instantly using the anchor app and the call-ins feature you just push the button record what you want to say and it shows up on my app 
so that I can Im- import it right into the show. It's really, really cool, and a lot of people have been sending great stuff. So thank you, all of you that are sending feedback, and keep those coming. Also, don't forget to favorite this station so you never miss any of the newest, latest, best every single day, seven days a week. We're here delivering content to you. Uh, in fact, that means I'll see you tomorrow. Until then, have fun gaming. Destiny 2 news continues to trickle out this week. Earlier in the week, we talked about the official announcement for Destiny 2, including that sweet font for the two, which is really all the information that we had at that time. But now we've got uh, official SKUs, an official release date. We know it's coming out September 8th on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. And most excitingly, I think, Windows PC, which is great news for fans of first-person shooters that prefer the mouse and keyboard control scheme. Uh, there are a whole grip of, of different versions. You, we know it's uh, got a $60 base version, a $90 version that's uh, bundled with an expansion pack, a $100 version that has the digital deluxe edition that comes with digital items, a legendary sword, a legendary emote, and an emblem. It's got a $250 collector's edition that has all the digital stuff and also a solar blanket, a solar-powered USB charger with a built-in light, and a paracord. Uh, Okay, all right. I guess if you're super into it, uh, this is the pattern that we're seeing now with all of the big AAA games. If you want to spend a whole (laughs) bunch of money on it, they'll take it for you. But uh, we also got a an announcement trailer, which is a just a CG cinematic trailer, uh, which featured some uh, some irreverence, some humor, the vocal stylings of Nathan Fillion, among others. Um, I think this is it, it, you know it's pretty cool. It doesn't show us much about what the game is actually going to be. No gameplay, of course, and no real even indication of what makes Destiny Two different from Destiny One, unless you count maybe some. Uh, irreverent characters but uh we uh you know there's there's cause to be excited if you're a destiny fan Uh, i got this call in uh earlier in the week from mike from architecture time talking about his response to destiny 2 Uh, take a listen to what he had to say i think that's spot on mike certainly for my sensibilities it i'm looking for that character customization i'm looking for a deeper level of connection to what's going on in Destiny 2 than I got in the first game. And I think that that's what will make me stick around. I played a heck of a lot of uh, the first Destiny in the beta and right when it first launched, and I just kind of felt the experience to be a little hollow. And I know a lot of people disagree with that, but more character customization, more connection to that universe, making me feel some reason for doing the things that I'm doing other than just getting a better gun and being able to do a better raid, I think uh, I think would go a long way in making me stick around and play lots more of Destiny 2. And I, I'm glad to hear that you agree. I mean, I think that maybe, perhaps, hopefully, that's what this cinematic trailer is indicating, that there is a bit more emphasis on character and a bit more emphasis on differentiating the factions and the uh, and the, you know, the ideas in the world. I'm hoping that also percolates down into mechanics, into systems in the game that allow me to differentiate my character. I hope that there are much more robust classes this time around. Uh, I think I didn't think the classes in the last Destiny really differentiated from one another in any significant way. Yeah, you had, you know, your different little alt ability that charged up and you had differences here and there, but 
ultimately it was, uh, you know, smack and shoot and smack and shoot and different kinds of shoot smacks and smack shoots. So, I mean, I, I prefer a uh, real need for different kinds of classes. And that's a tough thing to pull off in a game that wants to be able to let you solo things and group up. Because, you know, if, if I'm a healer class and I'm trying to solo stuff, it's going to probably be much more challenging. So it's going to be interesting to see as we roll on through much more uh, detailed announcements about what Destiny 2 is all about that we see, you know, some of the things that's going to make that game worthy of a big numbered sequel, worthy of being differentiated from its predecessor. So I have high hopes, as as clearly Mike does as well. Uh, let me know what you think about Destiny 2. It's going to be an interesting few months as we gear up towards September, and I'm it's it does seem like they're going to be trickling out information to maintain that hype and build up that that excitement level for the game hitting on September 8th. More news that broke yesterday, uh, Palmer Lucky, the uh, outspoken founder of Oculus, has departed Facebook, departed the company. Of course, he sold Oculus to Facebook in 2014 for a princely sum. I think it had a B in the name. Uh, two Bs? Two billion? So he's doing just fine. Uh, he has had some... Uh, problems, some PR uh, snafus recently, and some legal woes as well, as he was uh, featured prominently in the $500 million settlement to Zenimax, and also uh, really a worrisome thing for me, a thing that made me feel conflicted about supporting the company and supporting the product, his contribution of monies and time and effort in helping to spread some really awful, hateful memes on the internet and if you're like me and you don't really want to support that kind of behavior, that kind of uh, kind of disgusting spreading of really awful stuff, I think this is a breath of relief. Uh, certainly my co-host on DLC, Christian Spicer, felt very strongly about not wanting to support Oculus while Palmer Lucky was still employed there. And I think uh, his departure, whether forced or voluntary, uh, is going to end up being a positive thing, certainly in my mind, for the company. It it just isn't the kind of behavior you want to associate uh, an entertainment product with. And uh, you may have strong feelings either way, but I think, I hope that we can all agree that uh, funding or spreading of hate on the internet is not funny and is not something that you'd want to support with your entertainment dollars. Certainly I didn't. As much as I love the Oculus product and uh, have been uh, you know very vocal in my enthusiasm for VR in general which really Oculus spurred uh, and and Palmer Lucky spurred himself uh, I very very conflicted was very conflicted about uh, supporting the product while he was still associated with it so I think this is going to end up being a positive thing certainly for my psyche but maybe for the company as well because he seems to be sticking his foot in it quite often uh, it's going to be interesting to see what he does next. He certainly doesn't have to do anything with the amount of cash that he's that he's walking away with. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see if he continues to try to innovate in the tech field or he moves on to uh, something else. Hopefully, it's not political and and uh, you know hate filled. <laughs> and finally, we got word yesterday that Mad Cats is shutting down. They're filing Chapter Seven bankruptcy and shutting their doors, selling off assets, and all the proceeds are going directly to lenders. This is uh, the end of Mad Cats. 
it seems as if uh, Mad Cats really was relying on the plastic instrument industry to, to come back. Uh, when Rock Band 4 was released, Mad Cats put a lot of uh, eggs in that basket, evidently, and uh, was hoping that people were going to need to buy uh, plastic instruments again. And when it didn't take off, it uh, was uh, bad news for the company, which is, I think, bad news for all of us. I, I don't know if you have much experience with uh, Mad Cat's peripherals, bought a, a controller, maybe one of the ones that blew air on your hands to prevent sweating, or some of the other wacky stuff that they made. Uh, but I think this is a, is a bit of a bummer, seeing that uh, Mad Cat's was kind of a name, was kind of the name for, uh, you know, console peripherals, and uh, the fact that they're not going to be making stuff anymore. And as much as I've been crowing all week about how Rock Band VR is really bringing Rock Band back for me in a big way, uh, and I was using a Mad Cat's guitar controller, I believe that's the people that uh, supplied those controllers for the bundles for Rock Band 4, uh, you know, no more Mad Cats. It's the end of Mad Cats. Um, so some bad news there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who fills that void for, uh, you know, controllers, high-end peripherals, um, arcade sticks. I, you know, that's, that's really the Mad Cats product that I interacted with even more often than uh, plastic guitars and controllers. It, it was the arcade sticks. I, every time a new Street Fighter was released or a new Mortal Kombat, I had to get the new Mad Cats uh, arcade stick. But I guess we still have companies like Hori making uh, arcade sticks. Uh, even Razer has an arcade stick for PlayStation 4. So, you know, you still have purchasing options there. But uh, Mad Cats was, uh, I think, the, a, a name brand that we all recognized. And seeing it go away is a bit, is a bit of a bummer. Well, happy April Fool's Day, everybody. Is it happy? I don't know. I mean, I think April Fool's Day started out being a, a pretty fun, whimsical idea. And uh, in, the, in the age of the internet, as we tend to do, <laughs> we ruin things. Uh, if you're like me, you probably aren't even listening to this episode today. You're probably just staying off the internet. You're probably trying to avoid all of the useless nonsense that's being spewed on April Fool's Day. And assuming that I, like everybody else today, is going to be peppering my show with fake stuff. Uh, not going to happen. Although, I do think we could talk about April Fool's Day because as misleading and ridiculous as it has become, there is still some fun to be had. And I think there are companies and places that do it right, that uh, still have a good time with it, and take the opportunity to poke some fun at the industry and poke some fun at themselves, which is always a good thing. Where I think it goes wrong is, A, when they legitimately try to fool people, and, and I mean, that's just, it's just problematic in the age of fake news, and B, when they're announcing things that everybody wants and isn't real. I don't think that's the fun April Fool's joke. I think the fun April Fool's joke is the preposterous thing that nobody wants that kind of makes fun of the corporate culture of a company. So in that light, some of the best ones that I've seen around the web today, I thought it would be fun to talk about. GeForce put out a video uh, announcing a new product called the G-Assist, which is uh, 
It looks like a little USB drive that looks identical to their giant video cards. You plug it in and it allows you to go AFK and still be playing your games. Basically the idea is it plays games for you. It'll help you through a boss fight. It's uh, ironic because we play games to play games and we don't play games to not play games. So I guess that's the gag there. Not a brilliant joke, but, you know, at least it's in the right spirit in my mind. I also appreciated the mono lens that Rewind put out. Uh, this is a take on, I guess, uh, making fun of HoloLens and making fun of uh, Google Glass, uh, but updating it for the hipster generation or the hipster subset. And uh, it's a monocle. It's a monocle that is uh, provides AR and VR functionality. Has a little uh, little cord that goes into your ear. I, I think this might be my favorite one that I've seen today. It's pretty clever, and uh, you know, it 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 pokes fun at the right things. I'm into VR and AR, and I love the idea. Of we're all going to walk around with these monocles that are basically AR devices. Google also jumped on the make fun of the VR bandwagon, and uh, they they announced Google Haptic Helpers, which is a pretty ridiculous idea of uh, when you're in VR, when you're wearing a VR headset and you can't see the outside world, these are actual human beings that come equipped with a utility belt full of sense and, uh, and physical objects to put in your way at just the right moment so that your immersion in the VR world is more complete. Uh, you know, it's silly. It's obviously not real. I think these are the kinds of gags that are fun. You see a company put some effort into making a video that looks looks authentic but has a patently ridiculous concept, like a human being, you know, waggling a feather duster in your face when you have VR headset on. Nobody's going to be fooled by that. On the other side of the spectrum is the story that hit about Luigi's Mansion coming to Switch. Now, this is an example of something plausible and exciting for a lot of people. Luigi's Mansion is a, is a great game that I think everybody would love to see on the Switch. And I, I think, you know, knowing that it's April Fool's Day, knowing that today is Saturday and games don't get announced on Saturdays, we can suss out that this is false. But the idea of dangling something that is actually super cool and everybody would want and people would get legitimately excited about. Nothing fun about, oh my god, this is exciting. April Fool's, oh, oh, my excitement is misplaced. Oh. I guess there is a slight chance that Louise's Mansion will come to Switch, and maybe sometimes these April Fool's gags are just kind of floating ideas that actually do get made. I mean, we've seen that happen over and over again. I'm just not a fan of, get excited, eh, fooled you. Oh. I think all of this video game April Fool's stuff started way back in the 90s with EGM, Electronic Gaming Monthly, when they fooled everybody with their Street Fighter 2 uh, exclusive uh, on April, in the April edition, uh, saying that Shenlong was going to join the game. There was going to be a new edition of Street Fighter 2 with Shenlong. And of course, Ryu had always said, you must defeat Shenlong to stand a chance. Uh, and they said, oh, that's actually a character, and it's actually coming to the, to the game. Uh, I, it was a fun thing last, back then, because, oh my gosh, I got fooled. It was rare. It wasn't every news source, every destination, every magazine. And once that sort of happened and it caught on, it became almost required for every place on the net, 
every every magazine, every every destination you go to to pepper in fake stuff. And it's just become tedious, especially with the amount of actual fake news that's affecting the world. But I will say, I think the people that do this best, the kings of April Fool's Day, is Think Geek. Now, Think Geek breaks all the rules that I've established today, which is, yes, they create things that are awesome. They create things that you actually would want. And they get me excited. And in fact, a lot of the things that they've announced in previous April Fool's uh, on April Fool's Day have actually become Think Geek products. Like, you know, the most famous, I think, is that uh, the iCade, the iPad arcade, where you slip the iPad into a mini arcade cabinet. They actually made that and, and, and sold it. But they've got so many really amazing things over the time. Today's uh, 2017... Think Geek, uh, April Fool's gags. I guess they did a uh, a Where's Barb puzzle book that ties into Stranger Things, the Netflix series. They did a full body snake tattoo, temporary tattoo that's uh, based on Westworld, the TV show. Also, oh, that's actually HBO. And then, of course, the coolest one this year, in my opinion. The Hot Pockets Sleeping Bag. You can look like you're inside a Hot Pocket while you're sleeping. That is the one that I hope they actually make. I would love to have one of those. But looking back over time, there are so many awesome Think Geek April Fool's Day gags. I mean, I have to swallow my words in being a little cynical and over uh, April Fool's Day when a company like Think Geek does it so well. Um, some of my favorites from the past, uh, the Magic the Gathering Travel Edition. This is uh, all the fun of Magic the Gathering, but compact and tiny, <laughs> so you could take it with you. I mean, which one of us hasn't had the, uh, you know, the tiny Connect Four or the tiny Boggle or uh, the tiny Yahtzee game that we got, uh, you know, to, to take with us in the car when we were kids? The idea of doing that with Magic the Gathering is pretty brilliant. To have it teeny tiny cards. And then, of course, it comes with uh, magnifying glasses, which they, <laughs> they call uh, battle glasses, battle magnifiers, uh, so that you can see uh, battle magnifier goggles. <laughs> so you can see the cards and see all the tiny little text on the cards. I mean, that's pretty clever. Uh, the steam-powered gaming cabinet that they did a few years ago, which was literally going to be a steam power, a steam machine. You know, of course, the steam machines, Valve steam machines, were all the rage a few years ago. And the idea of doing it with actual steam, so that you could, uh, you know, you light coal, <laughs> and you burn it, and it powers uh, like a, like, you know, like a steam engine. Pretty brilliant. Uh, and then, of course. Maybe the best one ever, the Star Wars Tauntaun sleeping bag. Yeah, the Hot Pocket sleeping bag is cool, but not as cool as the Tauntaun sleeping bag. Which one of us who watched Star Wars didn't want to curl up inside a, a, a Tauntaun in the cold? I mean, it, it stinks in there, as you know, but uh, I thought they were smelly on the outside. Uh, but uh, yeah, this, this has a Tauntaun sleeping bag, and at the inside it looks like little guts. Uh, I mean, these are, these are clever. So I guess sometimes April Fool's Day can be a blast. It just feels like when you go online and you're bombarded with nonsense, it just feels a little tedious at this point. 
What do you guys think? You like you like April Fool's Day? Did I miss any good gags in 2017 today? You can always let me know. I'm at Jeff Canada on Twitter, and you can send a call in as well. I appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll be honest with you. It's been quite a long time since I have played a baseball video game. I'm not a huge baseball guy. I enjoy the playoffs. I get into it. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I'm, I'm, I've been excited when the Giants have gone to the World Series and won the World Series, and I get excited during the playoffs, but I'm not a baseball guy. Couldn't tell you half the names of the players. <laughs> Couldn't tell you who's doing well this year, who's not. I, I tune in during the playoffs, and it gets exciting in October. But uh, as we head toward opening day, I, you know, I'm disconnected. I'm not, I love going to the ballpark and seeing a game, but I, I'm not the guy that's going to rush out and play a baseball video game. That wasn't always the case. I really played a heck of a lot of baseball in the old, old days, on the old NES. RBI Baseball, Baseball Stars. Oh my gosh, I played so much Baseball Stars with my friend over at his house. We played that game forever. And I think baseball actually translates really, really well to a video game, but I just haven't really played them recently, so I'm not going to be able to tell you uh, a lot about how MLB The Show 2017 compares to its predecessors, but Sony did send over MLB The Show 2017 to me, and I did play it, and oh my gosh, it is a, a wonderful reminder of how well baseball works as a video game. It's it's uh, basically a turn-based strategy game, right? With a little bit of real-time action thrown in. <laughs> um, and, and I've been having a blast playing MLB The Show. I really, uh, it surprised me how much I jumped back in and, and enjoyed it and how much I appreciate all of the advancements to the genre that have happened in the, you know, 15 years since I've played a baseball video game. Uh, so, you know, I was wowed by how much it looks like television, how how realistic all the animations have gotten. Certainly that's not new. Um, there is a robust dynasty mode. There is, uh, th- there is a, a kind of a role-playing story mode this year. I didn't, haven't really gotten into any of that stuff. That's not going to be the stuff that it gets me excited, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that want to hear about that, and I totally understand it. That's a big part of the game, and, and maybe I'll try it. It's um, called Pave Your Path, and it's, it's a really cool concept. The NBA games have done this lately. Uh, FIFA did this recently, where you, you play the role of one player, and you try to create a, you know, an epic player through time. It's a, it's a true role-playing story mode, and I, I kind of dig that for sports games. But what I have been basically doing is just jumping in and playing baseball, just playing nine innings uh, as the Giants and uh, enjoying the mechanics. There are a whole variety of options when it comes to how you want to do pitching, how you want to do batting, how you want to do fielding. Uh, the game can can take care of uh, auto fielding for you. You've got a sort of pulse mode for pitching where you can try to you know play a little rhythm game and and get the reticle as small as possible as as it pulses large and small to try to get your your hitting in there there's there's uh you know analog stick control there's button control uh i i really appreciated all those options i kind of went with the most classic stuff the way i remember uh the way i remember baseball video games and 
uh, I really enjoyed all the fielding options where you would load up your pitch to a base before your fielder even got the ball. So I knew I'm, I'm throwing to first to try to throw that runner out, or I'm trying to turn a double play by throwing to second uh, before I throw to first. And uh, as soon as my you know shortstop catches the ball, I have it queued up for him to rocket it over to second, and then I'll have the second baseman rocket it over to first. That stuff, uh, that stuff's really fun, and it's instantly fun, and I can just jump in and play it. And of course, for somebody like me that hasn't even played uh, one of these games since the classic NES era, the fact that the game actually has a retro mode in it now, where you can actually play the game as if it was the old RBI baseball, is pretty fun. I mean, I don't know how long I'd stay in that mode, but it's a wonderful, cool mashup of that old school 8-bit visuals with these wonderfully modern character models with wonderfully modern animations and seeing the the awesome you know uh mo-capped players inside this nes game is a delight i this is again a review from someone with a very specific point of view not a baseball guy but i rediscovered my love of baseball games Another game that I put some time in in the last couple of days is the VR experience called Narcosis. I'm playing it on Oculus. Uh, Full disclosure, a good friend of mine, former colleague Jeff Mattis, you may remember him from the Weekend Confirmed podcast that I used to do, uh, he is the voiceover artist on this, playing the main character. So, um, you know, I'm inclined to support him and support his work. Uh, I dove into, <laughs> no pun intended, I dove into Narcosis uh, and uh, I put in quite a few hours. It's not a long, super long experience, but uh, it is one that it, it's trying. Whew, this is a underwater horror game where you play a deep sea diver who right at the beginning of the game has a catastrophe that uh, strands him and it's all about trying to uh, get back to the surface and figure out what's going on before you die, before you run out of oxygen. And a big mechanic in the game is maintaining your oxygen level and trying not to go insane. Uh, your character underwater, isolated, you know, at risk. He is uh, slowly going insane based on all, all the things he sees. And and as you see horrific things, and you will see horrific things, your breathing becomes agitated and heightened as well, so you tend to use up more oxygen. Now, you don't have control over any of that. If you see something, your oxygen intake goes up. Um, you You don't really have a way to be strategic about how you use oxygen. It's just sort of grab a tank when you can, try not to die. Uh, And I wish the game had a little bit more, I don't know, thought process behind that stuff. But it really, this is, this game's intention is to bring you through a very linear experience. And that experience is pretty intense in VR. Um, What it does really, really well is create that sense of isolation being inside this deep sea diving suit. You are uh, you looking at a you know the inside of a helmet, and you move you can move your head around inside that helmet in VR, and and I think that is a sensation that translates really really well to the headset because your physical face is feeling the sensation of having something on it. You know you're wearing the headset, you're wearing the VR goggles, and 
So you already have the physical sensation of something pressing on your face and feeling a little claustrophobic and isolated anyway. And to capitalize on that by putting you inside a, a deep sea diving suit and seeing the little readout in your view and, and uh, the game actually shows your breath uh, reflect against the glass inside the suit. So you, you see uh, it fog up a little bit as you breathe heavily. All that stuff's really scary and, and intense and really visceral. You feel like you're in that place. And then underwater works really, really well in VR, right? You have volume. Anytime you can see volume in VR, it, it is very effective. That's why you see a lot of these games have like dust mites in the air, you know, or rays of light that, sh- that shine and, and you see, you know, little volumetric wisps in the air. That stuff in the 3D of VR is really effective in creating a sense of space. And so being able to be underwater, games like The Blue uh, does that really well. It's a game I highly recommend. It's one of the, <laughs> one of the games I use uh, when I first put people in VR is The Blue. You get, you know, you're underwater, you see fish, they're beautiful, you see turtles, you see a whale, cool stuff. Narcosis, on the other hand, not what I would put people in first. It's, uh, it's quite intense. It's, uh, you know, very narrative heavy and... It's gonna scare you, man. It scared me. Uh, it it's got some. Uh, it it's all about making you feel like you're going crazy, making you feel like you are uh, claustrophobic and underwater, and it does that really, really well. Unfortunately, that's not an experience that I enjoy very much. I mean, I guess the game is not really about joy. It's about putting you through this experience and making you feel like you are maybe gonna die underwater. Um, so it's not a game that I loved, but I really appreciated the uh, effectiveness. And, of course, Jeff Mattis' voice work is great. You hear this sort of running monologue of this character who's trying to go through all this stuff. And he's a pro, right? He's a diver. He knows his protocols. And as he's going insane, he's really trying to keep it together and, and work through the problem. And that's all fun. It's a really, it's a really uh, well-written narrative. Uh, it's just... It's a little sludgy, you feel a little whoo, and uh, that's not an experience I love. <laughs> so, you know, take that with a grain of salt, Narcosis on Oculus, an interesting experience. Welcome to Newest Latest Best, your place for the newest information, latest reviews, and the very best that games have to offer. My name is Jeff Kanata, and today is Monday, March 27th, 2017.